But yeah, let's go ahead and get started. So uh, welcome back, everybody, to I think our was this our fourth, is our fourth Q and A, our fifth show, but our fourth Q and A show, um, where um, Ben and I are uh, answer um, uh, questions um, from the world, uh, from entrepreneurs, uh, from people interested in tech. Uh, all questions are solicited on Twitter in the days uh, leading up to the show. So these these are all um, these are all uh, submitted questions. Um, and we have once again, and just an outstanding array of, of, uh, of questions, really high quality. So thank, thank you everybody who submitted and please uh, keep them coming. By the way, we're keeping a complete log of all, um, submitted questions, um, which at some point in the rest of, at some point we will answer all of them in the rest of our lives, although it may take a while. Um, but we are committed to the cause. Um, so we have, I have uh, 10 questions lined up as usual. We'll go to about eight. 30 um and if we uh if we don't run out of topics and let's start in the deep end as we like to do and ben this is a three-part question uh or three different questions that kind of zero around the same topic so i'm going to read all three questions and then we can dig in so uh brandon brandon hamstra asks one of the recommended traits of entrepreneurs is grit uh and perseverance but how do you know when there's still a chance of success and worth pushing or when you are beating a dead horse um, Bo Lee asks, besides metrics, what are the signs you look for to, to determine if a startup is growing or no, or no longer viable? Um, and then Richard mm-hmm. Pickering asks, how can a startup tell if it has not entered, this is very well put, if it has not entered hell, but rather has entered purgatory? Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I had a passage about that in my book. <laughs> <laughs> there we go, there we go. I.e. that it is getting by each year and doing okay, but doesn't really have a chance to become any more, and doesn't really have a chance anymore of becoming a multi-billion dollar company. Um, so Ben, why don't you start with this one? Yeah, so in terms of knowing if there's still a chance, you kind of have to think about the components of success in a startup. And the first is, you know, do you have product market fit? Meaning, do people like the product or people or companies like the product and will they pay you enough money for it? Um, And, you know, enough money is really so that you can make money. Like, is that, you know, if if that's not true, then that's a problem that for sure has to be solved. Um, The second is, is the market big enough? Um, Or is it just like you got, 10 people to love the product, but that's the only 10 you're ever going to sell it to. And then the, the next thing is, okay, and then is your product the best? Um, meaning, or is there another company that's just going to beat you into submission? Because number two, particularly with technology products, is usually uh, at best purgatory. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that you you monitor. And then, you know, the question is, of course, you know, can you get to joy on all three before you run out of cash or and can't raise money? And so that, that that's kind of the question you have to ask yourself. And it's very tricky because as an entrepreneur, you know, you, you can't possibly succeed as an entrepreneur unless you're extremely optimistic because you'd have to be insane to take on like building a company and solving a problem better than anybody else in the world. It's just like a crazy idea. And if you're not an optimist, you'd never take it on. But you have to be, at some point, you have to not lie to yourself. Um, And, you know, like some, not all these things work. And some companies with great, great people don't work. Uh, In terms of, you know, signs that it's no longer viable, 
like it's it's generally harder for us to tell from the outside in some ways other than we're a little more dispassionate about it than the than the people in the company but you know look if you're you know some signs for us are like okay yeah if you don't have product market fit or if the market is small or if you're losing to the competition and the founder is no longer willing to chew glass then it's never going to make it you know sometimes you know, you just get tired uh, and you can't possibly figure it out. Sometimes the runway is just too short. You just don't have enough money to get to the next square, um, given how far you are and what the distance is. But, you know, th these are not, there's no hard and fast rules. Uh, there is no formula left for it because, look, companies have been pretty dead. Um, like, Opsware was pretty dead. We had three weeks of cash when we barely made it public, like one, a very reasonable person could have said quit right there. Um, so, you know, that's a, that, that's a reasonable thing. And then um, in terms of hell or purgatory, like the biggest reason you enter purgatory in my view is you've got a product that some people like, but you're really not gonna be number one. Um, you're gonna be the second or third or fourth choice in the market. And, you know, at that point, you really want to kind of free the people who you've hired to go do something more meaningful with their careers. And that's a, that, that's always a tough decision. So I, I give it back to you on that, Mark. Yeah, so two, two kind of applied questions that come out of this immediately for me. Um, so one is, and these are, these are both management leadership questions. So one is, you know, as a CEO, you're getting up in front of the company, you know, once a week or once a month or something, and you're basically, you know, telling the company kind of what you think about where you stand. And yep. when it gets to be, you know, year two, year three, year four, year five, and it's not quite working, like, how do you balance as a CEO in that situation? Like, how do you balance basically keeping up morale and positivity and optimism? And how do you balance um, realistically describing where things stand, you know, especially as you start to think that maybe it's just not going to work? Well, I think you have to, like, you have to describe the problems and the potential. Actually, the person who did this better than anybody since we started the firm was Stuart uh, Butterfield, um, where he was, you know, when the game wasn't going to work. So those of you who don't know Stuart, he's the founder of Slack, um, which he recently sold to Salesforce for, I don't know, somewhere between 42 and $47 billion or something like that. Very big number. Um, and, but, you know, the company was originally a game called, um, Tiny, uh, the game was called Glitch and the company was called Tiny Spec, I believe. Uh, and the game, you know, was built on Flash and Flash was later banned by Steve Jobs from iOS. Uh, and the game also had another problem where people would finish playing it in like two days and they, they'd get to the end of the game, the end of the universe. Um, so in order to fix the game, was going to be very expensive uh, and he couldn't raise money without a game that was viable and he didn't have enough money. I think he had $6 million in the bank to kind of get it to, to where it needed to go. And, you know, he was really incredibly clear with the company about where they stood on that. It's just like, look, the game's not going to work, but I do think, um, you know, we've got, some great people here. And I do think this tool that we built to communicate between San Francisco and Toronto um, is a really great tool uh, and we could sell it. <laughs> um, 
or that's what he thought anyway. Like that, that that's a pretty crazy idea if you built a game company and you think you're going to go sell enterprise software. Um, but he was very, he was both honest and optimistic. And I think that's, you know, if you're going to continue, you have to be realistic about what the problem is because it's not like the people in the company have no idea about it, um, no matter how, you know, good you are at spinning things. Um, but then you have to have like at least a, an interesting enough plan B or kind of alternate path or way to fix what you have that people are intrigued enough to follow you. And that's, you know, that's the balance until, right, you completely give up. Yep. Yep. I think that, that makes sense. And then the other, the other um, question I always think about on this is, um, you know, there's this famous, I think, part of Sun Tzu's The Art of War, where he makes this sort of seemingly obvious, but actually profound, uh, at least to me, observation, which he says, like, the, the thing about, like, assembling an army um, yeah. and, like, going off to battle is that at some point, the army has to win. Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, it's crippling the army. Right, right. That's a great passage. Yeah, and so it's it's like, and, and the way I, I think of applying this to start to startups is basically like, at some point, there has to be victory. Like, at some point, there has to be progress, and things have to work. Because in, in the alternative, if that doesn't happen, you know, you, you you do see these situations where like the founder wants to keep going, but like fundamentally, you start to lose team cohesion, um, and you start to have plummeting morale. And then at some point, people are just like, look for my, you know, for the safety of my own career, like I have to go get a different job. Like I can't just stay here for you know five years or ten years or fifteen years while this doesn't work. Um, yeah. And so, Ben, in your view or in your in your experience, like what's the what is the time horizon over which you know a startup has to work? Uh, you know, beyond which it's just gonna you know, <laughs> just say, even if the market is like about to materialize, it's just too late because basically just too much time has passed. Yeah, you know that's a hard question because um, you're right. So the people get tired. By the way, all the, the whole tool chain that you built the product on um, gets out of date. I mean, you know, with Stuart, it happened fast with because, you know, Steve Jobs put a bullet in in Flash. But, the, you know, no matter what architecture you build on, no matter how modern, like in 10 years, it's going to be pretty old. And so if you don't have product market fit at that time and somebody takes your same idea on a modern tool chain, they're going to beat you. So, like, you have that problem. Um, and then you have the problem of, yeah, how long are really great people going to work on something that's not working? I, look, I'd say that, you know, realistically, it's very hard in kind of today's Silicon Valley to go more than four or five years without getting some kind of real traction. Um, but there are companies that have gone further <laughs> with no traction and turned it around. Like there's definitely amazing stories, you know, of that. So I, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it usually involves a pivot and a rebuild of the team and, yeah. you know, a somewhat re-architecting of what you built before. So, you know, in most circumstances, if you don't get to real momentum in, you know, somewhere like four or five years, it, it gets very tough. And it depends, you know, if it's a deep, deep, deep infrastructure product or something, you know, it can take faster or like, you know, like Google has been building Waymo for, I think, 13 years now, and they're not in market 
Um, but it's such a deep technology problem, and there are milestones that they've hit along the way that are pretty spectacular. So, you know, on something like that, you can keep it going longer. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the longest, like, what's the longest dated, like, pure startup that you're aware of that, that actually made it work? Yeah, you know, that's a, such a good question. And often, you know, what's a good one is Concur. Mm -hmm. Concur started as, like, some... PC application in I think the early 90s and they didn't really get like momentum for maybe 15 years I want to say uh, and yeah I mean we know Raj he's amazing <laughs> um, and you know his brother Steve uh, and you know those guys were just tougher than the problem or the market you know quite frankly and I guess since they were relatives, <laughs> neither one of them could quit. Yeah, we just had, you know, it's, this, this is not a this is not an answer to this question, but it's kind of a re related thing, which is Roblox, uh, you know, that just went public. Um, uh, you know, it was it, it worked. I mean, it was working. It was working, you know, much earlier than you know, started in, one, in the early 2000s um, and, you know, just went public in 2021. And it, it was certainly working earlier on. So it's not a case of something that wasn't working, but if you look at the curves, like it just, it, you know, the, the hockey stick was in the real, you know, the real hockey stick to like real critical mass of growth was in the last, it was in the last few years. And so in, in, in retrospect, it looks like a 10 or 12 or, you know, up, up to even maybe a 15 year build process to really get to where, you know, it kind of becomes this global champion. Yeah. Yeah. It was very kind of slow going and you could have argued that, um, you know, it like by most kind of metrics, you could have argued that it was, dead or not going to go anywhere but you know like they're building a whole universe right, right. <laughs> um, so right. it's going to take some time yeah yep big lift um, okay great um okay next uh, we'll uh, move on so next question so luke brown asks um in your opinion what is the most common mistake made by founders when pitching vcs uh whether the deck q a preparation or anything and i have a very strong uh view on this but ben i'll let you go first and then i'll i'll see if uh, yeah i mean to, to me it's very common it's they come in and they tell us what they think we want to hear yep. that's a that's the biggest fucking mistake because you can't defend it <laughs> like how are you going to defend what you think you wanted us to hear you know we're, we're going to ask you a question and you're going to go, well, I thought that was what you wanted to hear. That's why I said it, which is a dumbass reason to say it. And then even deeper than that, look, if a VC doesn't like your vision or your plan or what you're building, then you don't want them as an investor. Like that's, <laughs> you want to build what you want to build in the way you want to build it with your strategy. If a VC requires a different strategy than the one that you have, yeah. then like that's not your that's not your investor you should go find somebody who who believes in what you're doing not what they want to do yeah so i would give i would sort of the same answer i mean i'm not surprised we kind of have the same answer but i'll give a different kind of take on it which is basically tell us the truth um yeah. and by that i actually it, it actually like what we run into a lot is actually it's not so much where i think founders intend to lie to us i, I don't think that actually happens all that often um, but we're, what, what, what we find finders get, finders get a lot of advice on how to pitch VCs. Um, and they get that from, you know, they get that from people who mean well. So they get that from angel investors and seed investors and, you know, other entrepreneurs and, you know, lots of people around them who have advice. Um, and it's, it is fairly surprising to us, I would say, or to me continuously, how much of that advice basically distills down to like telling the VCs something other than just the truth. Um, 
you know, sorry, just the most common one. The most common one, which is just such a cliche now that it's almost embarrassing when we hear it, is, you know, oh, I wasn't planning to raise money. Um, you know, this isn't a real fundraising round, but I, I'm responding inbound. And, and it's like, you know, the, the first entrepreneur who said that to us, you know, we kind of bought it. But, the, you know, the 4,000th entrepreneur who says that, you know, the, 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 the gimmick is starting to get a little bit old. Um, and so <laughs> yeah. w- when you see this many pitches, and this is part of what happens, it's just as a VC, you just see so many pitches. And so you kind of see this advice playing out over literally thousands of pitches. Um, and it's just kind of surprising how there, there's basically this set of techniques that, that founders get advice to use, which basically all involve, you know, shading, shading the truth in some way. Which relates back to exactly what Ben said, which is just basically t- you know t- telling us what actually is the truth as opposed to what what somebody thinks we, we need to hear, and and yeah, I would I would just add two things to what Ben said on that. So one is yeah, look the the, the reason you want an investor who actually like understands what you're doing is like once we give you the money, like we don't go away, like we're, we're there with you for the next you know twenty years, um, and so you know it's you know it, it's it's the it's the it's the most intimate kind of business relationship that you can have that's like an, an analogous to getting married. Um, it's cause it's, it's just, you, you end up working <laughs> together so closely. Um, yep. and so, you know, just imagine getting married to somebody under false and hard like, to get divorced, very hard to get divorced. Yes. Hard and painful. It's, it's, you're, you're much, much, much likely to suffer, um, than, than you are to separate. Um, so, you know, just imagine getting married under false pretenses. Um, like it's just, it's just a really bad idea. Cause like you're literally stuck with each other. Um, and so, you, you know, you really, you really don't want to end up in, in, in that spot. And then, and then look, the other thing is like, you know, if we're any good in our job, like we're going to find out, like we're going to discover like the, the, basically the things that aren't true. Um, and, and this, you know, basically is what we end up doing. And, you know, some of this, we just do kind of the, in the natural course of evaluating the pitches, just because we see all these patterns and they're just, you know, certain things that just kind of jump out at us is like, okay, yep. You know, that advisor, yep. Coaches all of his companies to say, you know, X where, you know, X is not quite true. So, so we do tend to pick these things up. And then the other is, you know, we, we do diligence. Um, and in the diligence, you know, we do things like we actually like read customer contracts and we check bank balances and we like, you know, do reference checks. Um, and, you know, basically anything that's misrepresented, like it's, I would say it's fairly rare that we end up actually closing on a transaction, um, and then, and then, and then being surprised by something. Um, and so it, it, I would say it is, I guess I would say, I, I I don't think any of the fancy techniques that involve shading the truth actually help. I think they only hurt. Um, now (laughs) I say that not expecting this to change at all. Um, because apparently people think that this is sophisticated device, but uh, if if you're a founder, I would I would just say like by far the most refreshing thing that can happen is just like yep, here's you know here here is what I actually think, and I, I think you'll find yeah. that'll that'll set you up actually both for the odds of raising money, but also the odds of having the right kind of partner. Yep, 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 yep. No, I that, that that that's exactly right, and it, it, it's such a and it's so much um, it's such such a better feeling to go and pitch on what you believe than what you think somebody else believes. So it's, it's its own reward. Yeah. I'd also say, look, and I, you know, Ben and I both raise, raise venture, you know, ourselves and helped a lot of friends of ours raise venture before we became VCs. And I'd say, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of, you know, some of this is probably true, but there, there's a lot of belief, I think, in the ecosystem that you need to like apply all these, all this game theory to VCs and figure out how to like manipulate VCs and concern the VCs are going to manip- manipulate you. And I think that the, the reality of it is, I would say like the reality of it is like, we're in business to fund companies. Like it's, it's why we, it's why we're there. Right. And so it's like, you know, we wake up every morning and go to work or, you know, log on to zoom and like the, the entire purpose of the day, right. Is to be able to like meet, you know, support entrepreneurs. And a big part of that is to meet entrepreneurs and, and, and actually fund companies. And so, you know, while it is true that we don't, you know, no VC funds, most of the pitches that they see just on the numbers, it, it is also true that like every day we're hoping to, you know, meet the entrepreneur that's going to be our next, our next investment. 
And so, it, you know, for us, an entrepreneur who comes in and basically says, look, here's my plan, here's what I'm doing. <laughs> By the way, I'm raising money. <laughs> like, here's my process for raising money. Um, like, it's like a gift, right? It, it's like the best thing that can happen to us, like that whole day, and maybe that whole week, and maybe that whole year, maybe that whole decade. Um, and so it's just like so great when it's when it's actually like a great pitch from somebody who's like, you know, you know, sort of accurately representing what they're doing and really, you know, helping us understand it. You know, that, that, that's by far the most powerful message. And, and, and a lot of the other kind of game theory and manipulation that happens around it, I, I think, is just actually not helpful. Yeah. Yep. Yep. No, totally agree. Good. So from that topic, then let's jump to the next one, which is sort of the other side of this, uh, which is what happens after the pitch. Um, uh, so Andy Mich uh, Mikowski asks, biggest disagreements on whether to invest or not. So what are our biggest disagreements <laughs> on whether to invest or not after the founder leaves the room? And, and let me, let me, let's phrase the question, Ben, of like biggest disagreements. So that basically suggests that what we're talking about is a company that's not an easy yes or an easy no. Um, yeah. but a company where there might be, you know, a really vigorous disagreement, you know, with people arguing both sides of that, like what, what would be the, the, the sort of biggest or most dramatic uh, forms of that disagreement within, within our firm? Yeah. I mean, so I, I would kind of preface it by saying like, this is a, a super important question because the best investments, you know, ever made were generally controversial at the time of the investment. And the reason for that is for something to be truly a breakthrough, um, it's got to be hard to understand or other people would have come up with the idea. So if you come with something that's genuinely in the innovative, um, then people are going to poo-poo it. Um, they, there's just, there's no way around it uh, because it would have been done already. Um, but you know, you knew something that nobody else did, and then you've got to convey it to a bunch of venture capital partners and so forth. So, so this is the most important thing. And then I, I would say, kind of, um, the I'll bring back something Mark said. I don't know if it was last show or the show before, which was, you know, the key to a partnership is being able to um, value the partnership more than being right, <laughs> uh, which is very important in these situations. And then I'll say an analog to that is I only remember when I was right and Mark was wrong. And I think he only remembers when he was right and I was wrong. So, exactly. <laughs> so all, all, all of this is very skewed. Uh, but like usually uh, the big disagreements come um, from kind of a, a difference in uh, depth of understanding of the, of the company, I would say. So um you know, some cer certain things, unless you're very, very close to them, are hard to understand. Like the person who's close to it has to make the call. You can't have people, you know, from the peanut gallery trying to figure out deep, deep uh, kind of market and technical issues. Yeah, so it's almost an answer that you know, so get back to the question, biggest disagreements. Yeah, it's it's almost always yeah, over that. And it's basically like the other theme that we just see over and over again. It's it's we, we talk about this a lot is it's basically it's are you investing in um, strength or are you investing in lack of weakness? Um, and it's very easy to get into a mode where you're investing in lack of weakness. Um, in other words, like it's very easy to get in a mode where you're investing in things that are kind of OK across the board. Uh, but don't have anything that's like particularly magical. And then conversely, when you do find something that's particularly magical, it often does have significant weaknesses, right? It often does have, you know, we use the term, it, 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 you know, they, it, all the great 
all the great investment, all the great venture investments had a lot of hair on them um, at the time of investment. And we could, we could probably spend like four hours going through like all the great venture investments of the last like 40 years and all the things that were wrong with them. Um, and so it is really easy to talk yourself. It, it, it's like just history tells you like it's really easy to talk yourself out of the really great investments. And, and there's, there's almost always a very good reason to not do them. Um, and then in retrospect, you realize, you know, years later that that was just a gigantic mistake um, to, to yep. think in those terms. And, and the things with the strongest strengths yep. have the biggest weaknesses. I mean, like right down to like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, right? Like, I mean, these guys have like ridiculous weaknesses, um, but who cares? Right. You know, yep. they're, they're, the, they're the, it's those people who change the world. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Um, so great. Okay. So let's keep moving. So, um, ah, it was uh, actually related, uh, related question uh, based directly on this. So this gets very specifically to the people evaluation side of things. <laughs> um, so Rello asks, um, how do you deal with the situation where the idea behind the company is great and the company clearly has great potential? Um, but it comes to light, um, you know, in the, during the discussion process or maybe diligence that one of the founders is just simply toxic to work with. Unless, you know, by toxic say, you know, basically like, you know, lots of forms of toxic, but, you know, unpleasant enough where, you know, there's a serious risk around, uh, you know, sort of that founder's presence in the company. Yeah, no, that's, um, you know, this is a, this is such a great question because this was one of the debates that we had very early on in the firm was, um, and look, we had some early partners who were like, you know, we need to have like the, the there, there's this book, I think, called the No Asshole Rule, which yep. is a management <laughs> book. Yep. And he said, like, we need a No Asshole Rule. And and look, we concluded, no, like we're going to have to invest in some assholes. Um, yeah. And look, it depends like what kind, <laughs> what type, like, and there are certain types, of course, that look, we wouldn't be in, there's certain people who we wouldn't be in business with um, because they're doing like, like there's a certain kind of toxic, which is, um, you know, you're, sexually harassing people or you're committing fraud or you're doing like we're not talking about those kinds of things we're talking about just being a very difficult personality like not agreeable <laughs> um kind of like somebody like uh nasim taleb or somebody like that who's like just a very disagreeable like difficult and a lot of people would characterize them as toxic but you know those are often you got to be careful with that and you you know I, in that, you know, I think many people would put Elon Musk in that category right now. I think if you polled like America, probably half of the people would say he's toxic and horrible and half of them would say he's the greatest thing that ever happened to us. Uh, and I think that, look, I, you know, I'm in firmly in the latter category. I mean, what he's done is amazing. He's like got us back into space and he's, you know, uh, he made electric cars a real thing. Um, you know, I, he probably accelerated the deployment of electric cars by, you know, five to 10 years in the world, if, you know, maybe more. Or, or more, um, Yeah, and so like, you know, I'll take that for like some of his um, interesting uh, kind of personality things that people don't like. Uh, but, you know, that's how those, you know, like geniuses are like that. And, uh, you know, I, it's interesting, they're, they're like that in all fields, they're like that in music, you know, you get the top, top guys, you know, in music or in art. I mean, I think, you know, like nobody ever said Picasso was a nice guy or, <laughs> you know, Jackson Pollock was definitely not a nice guy. They were both toxic in their own way. But, um, you know, that's 
kind of the brilliance. And like a lot of what we try to do, if we run into a founder that's like that, is kind of help them, you know, help them hear how they sound and be effective. You know, they're, they're always going to be a little disagreeable, but, you know, being effective and disagreeable as a leader um, is something that that's well worth investing in um, because, like, they just don't make that many human beings like that. And so if you run into one, best to try and, and deal with the kind of toxicity than to just walk away because, you know, they said something to you you didn't like. Yeah, there is, of course, a big caveat to this, which is you, you, you can't, it's, it's hard to get away with Steve Jobs level behavior if you don't have Steve Jobs level performance. Yeah, no, just toxic is no good. <laughs> so this has to be, uh, this has this, in all cases, has to be, has to be matched with, with actual uh, quality. Um, and then, you know, Ben, let's, let's sharpen the question even more though, which is like, you know, some people, some people are toxic and, you know, some people are toxic and that they're just like kind of unpleasant to be around and you people just really have to kind of, you know, kind of grit their teeth when they're dealing with them. There, yeah. there are people though, who are, you know, quite talented, who are, I would say toxic in a way that they will actively drive other talented people out of the company where people just like literally won't tolerate it. And they just like, you know, they just, they, they just end up leaving. Uh, and, you know, and sometimes these are the geniuses, like sometimes the, the, the person in question really is like the genius at the heart of the company. And so, like, how, how do you know when it's just like too, when somebody's just too far over the line, such that the level of actual dysfunction that they're going to cause, you know, outweighs even even the brilliance, even, even in the case of somebody who's really smart? Yeah, I mean, I, I think generally those people can only be founders um, in that, like, if you bring in an employee like that or an executive, then what happens is they ruin the whole communication of the company because they're bad peers, Um they work like, I think if you hired Steve Jobs as a head of product in your company, you'd have to fire him. Yep. Um, like, I think the, that level of kind of personality can only exist as CEO. Like, it's just not possible otherwise, because there's just a dynamic where they'll just ruin everybody else um, and you'll never have a culture that works. But as CEO, he was okay because he could kind of surround himself with people who could, you know, deal with the fallout of, uh, uh, of some of the things that he might do. And um, so, so I don't think that like anybody in the company can be like that. I think it's a very special thing reserved for the founder CEO, um, who is also a genius. Um, but you really, like the one thing you can't have on the team is somebody who nobody can even kind of talk or communicate because they're going to get attacked by this kind of toxic person or the Mr. Know-it-all or, you know, has to be the smartest person in the room and insult everybody on every single suggestion. Like that just doesn't work in an organization unless it's their organization um, because then they're a little more, they're, mo most people will be gentle enough if they're the CEO. Now, some, sometimes they're not and sometimes they're just not good enough to get away with that kind of behavior either. I was going to say the founder or CEO or founder CEO does they they do themselves have a test which is can, can they basically rally a team can they build a yeah, team and they, keep the team yeah yeah and if they can't do that then obviously that's a wrap yep that's all there is yep nobody make, makes yeah. the, makes these things work by themselves nope. Yeah, and then Ben alluded to something which I think is actually pretty, I think, important to understand, which took me a long time to understand, which is um, there, there actually is a there actually is a personality trait um, that psychologists call disagreeableness, 
um, <laughs> they call it agreeableness, but mostly we experience in the world is <laughs> disagreeableness. The, the agreeable people tend to fit in, the disagreeable people tend to stand out. Um, and so it, it's, it's, what, it's one of what's called the big five personality traits. And so it's one of the sort of most stable kind of well-understood personality traits that's kind of constant, um, or, or people kind of exhibit constant behavior across time. You know, so, some people are just literally more agreeable or more disagreeable than other people. And what's interesting about that trait, um, it's one of the sort of five big ones in psychologists study. What's interesting about that trait, um, it, well, for a couple things. So first is it, it tends to be more or less stable across somebody's lifetime. So people generally don't get more or less agreeable as they age. Um, second is um, it's not a good or bad thing in the abstract and, and the, the theory there. And actually, if you look at the distribution of, of, of dis disagreeableness in the population, it's actually charts, onto, uh, plots onto a bell curve. Um, where you have, you know, most people cluster somewhere in the middle where they're kind of agreeable, kind of disagreeable. And then you have like, you have you know, sort of a smaller number of outliers that are either extremely agreeable or extremely disagreeable. And of course, like <laughs> in tech and entrepreneurship, you know, and CEOs, we tend, to we tend to deal with the far right end of the curve, the sort of most disagreeable people in the world. Um, and then, um, and so, and, and it actually turns out, it's like, the theory is like there's evolutionary fit, which is a society actually needs all types to function. Right. So if we were an entire society made up of all agreeable people, like nothing new would ever happen. And if we were an entire society made up of all disagreeable people, like we'd all just, you know, like quite literally kill each other. And so there's 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 some blend that's required. Um, and then the other thing that kind of goes along with this is somebody who's disagreeable as a consequence of this, like they're probably disagreeable across many aspects of their life. Right. So it's probably not just how they operate at work. Right. It's probably also what they're like to deal with outside the office. It's probably what they're like if you go on a fishing trip with them. It's probably like, yep. you know, they're, they're, their spouse probably deals with it, um, you know, probably has, you know, either figured out how to manage it or not, uh, but probably experiences the same thing. Um, and so it seems to be a pretty kind of dialed in kind of concrete kind of innate trait. Uh, and, you know, look, you know, people, you get coaching, right? And so some people get coaching, you know, some people get, um, Ben and I used to work with somebody who got what he, what he referred to as uh, puppies and kittens coaching. Um, yeah. uh, and, uh, it was basically like, you know, sometimes you get coaching that basically says, look, you just have to get along better with other people and you have to like try to get nicer. And then there are other people who get literally what's called right assertiveness training, right. Which is training in the other direction of basically how to stand up for themselves and how to argue. And so, you know, you can kind of gain skills to kind of deviate off of what your kind of innate trait is on this, but it's unlikely, at least what the psychologist will tell you is over your life. It's like unlikely you'll vary that much. From, from like your normal set point. And so, and I, I find that like, uh, on the one hand, that's like a, a, a depressing kind of point uh, because it's like, you know, we, we like to think that we can change everything about us and, and maybe that's not quite so easy. But it's also a little bit of a reassuring point. It's just like, look, when, you know, or at least the way I think about it is when we're, when we're dealing with somebody who's like, just like super disagreeable, um, we basically just have to come to grips with the fact that they're probably always going to be like that. Um, and you know, we, we, like when we think about like organizational design or, or by the way, whether it, whether they're back an entrepreneur, like it, it's, it's basically, it is part of the package. Um, it is who this person is. It's what, it's what they're going to be like. And probably spending a lot of time trying to change them is probably not going to be that effective. Let me check with that. Ben, Ben, do you agree with all that? Or do you think that's too, um, that's kind of too static of a way to think about it? Yeah, you no, know, look, I think that's right. I mean, I think that you're not going to change somebody from <laughs> disagreeable to agreeable. Like that's never going to happen. Um, but what, what I always like, so, so in my role as coach, what I kind of direct people to is like, you got to really figure out what's effective and you can't just let your personality hang out. Um, if you want to be a, an effective leader, you've got to go, okay, 
what parts of it, when I say something, do I get the behaviors? Do I get the thinking? Do I get the kind of organizational change that I want? And then what part of it just makes people upset? And you've got to learn to govern yourself a bit. And look, quite frankly, Steve Jobs really did. I mean, if you look at his first stint at Apple compared to his second stint after running Next for 10 years, he was a very modified version of himself. Um, but he was still like extremely disagreeable. Good. Well, that segues us directly to the next question. Um, so Ryan Tarzi asks, um, who is the closest thing to coach Bill Campbell in the Valley now? Um, and, um, and, and just to, as a background for people who have not heard the name. So Bill, Bill Campbell was sort of legendarily kind of management coach, sort of the best management coach in the history of Silicon Valley. He was himself a great CEO uh, and a great leader, but he mentored among other people, uh, Steve Jobs and Eric Schmidt at the same time, uh, and Larry Page, um, as well as, uh, as well as my partner, Ben and myself. Um, and in fact, there's, there's, a, there's actually a, a book on this now um, called, I think, uh, Trillion Dollar Coach, which is a great title. Yeah. Um, so he, he kind of, so Bill unfortunately passed away a few years back, but, um, you know, it's kind of set the bar in the valley for what greatness looked like as uh, you know, somebody to coach founders. Um, and so the question is, who is the closest thing to Coach Campbell in the valley now? And then more generally, um, what should founders and CEOs look for in a coach? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, Bill, um, he he was pretty different, I would say, than the at least the coaches that I've run into now. Um, in that, like, he didn't have like a structured way to like set objectives or KPIs or this and that and the other that he kind of did. The thing that Bill Bill had a very like a rare and magical thing that he could do, which is, um, and Donna Dominsky had a great description of it where she said, look, I, I, and she was giving this speech with like 3000 people. And she said, like, I'm looking at you 3000 people. And I would say probably at least half of you consider Bill Campbell, your best friend. And like, you're right. And and like, he could do that. He, everybody felt like Bill was their best friend, like the first person they wanted to call. Um, and, the thing he could do is like he could build a relationship with somebody in like five minutes. He would get to know them. He would ask them all the right questions. And then he would remember everything that they said back. Um, so he just had like, you know, he'd come into, you know, our company at Opsware and he would just walk around the hall and he would meet people and he would remember their names, their kids' names, like what sports they were into, like all that kind of thing. And so he just like had this picture of the company that was very, very different than like anybody else could hold, including me as a CEO. Um, and what that enabled him to do and, and why he was like so effective at coaching is he could see the company through the eyes of the employees um, kind of at all times. And so as CEO, if you were going to make a decision, he would go, well, like, this is what, you know, Joe in engineering is going to think about this, or this is what's this and that. And that's kind of the essential great leadership skill is, can you represent the people who aren't in the room? Can you know what they're thinking? Can you um, kind of make sure that things are fair to them, even though they're not there lobbying you, trying to be political, whatever, they're somewhere out there in the ether? And, you know, like, I just don't know anybody who can do that, um, like Bill. The only other person I ever met who had that skill was Oprah Winfrey. And you, you know, and I, I, 
I saw her do it on the show, but I, I, you know, I, that could have been a magic trick or whatever. But like when I met her in person, she did the same thing that, that Bill could do. Um, but other than those two, I, I don't know anybody who could do that. So um, I don't know that there's another Bill Campbell that I would recommend, quite honestly. I think that, you know, when you're looking for a coach, a lot of it does come down to the quality of the conversation. It's not like you're extracting some knowledge that they're just going to hand you in a kind of a card or a format. Running a company is extremely dynamic. Every company is unique. Every product dictates an org structure that's different than, you know, kind of every other company. And so you need somebody who really understands organizational dynamics, understands you, understands your psychology, understands your weaknesses, and you can have a really high quality conversation about any situation that might arise. Um, and that, you know, that, that was the thing that, that Bill really did, but he did it in a way that is really hard to replicate because he had this, this unbelievable talent. So you, answer. yeah, no, that's great. That's <laughs> great. So you, you dropped, you, you dropped something in there that I, I have to pull on. I thread I have to pull on. So Oprah, of course, is, um, as, um, uh, back in the news uh, in the last couple of weeks with this just like extraordinary yeah, yeah. interview that she just uh, uh, hosted with um, uh, um, uh, uh, Prince Harry and, and, and um, I forget, uh, D- Duchess Meghan, I believe. Yeah, Duchess um, Meghan. A, a point of contention, apparently, but Duchess Meghan. Um, and so, um, which, you know, just by the way, for people who haven't seen it, it's just like absolutely spectacular uh, interview uh, on a number of fronts um, and sort of has reminded everybody of why so kind of Oprah so good at what she's good at. Um, so, so Ben, I, I have to ask you. You said so when you when you met Oprah, she she did she she did things that reminded you of Bill. Like what? Like when you when you meet Oprah Winfrey, what does she do? Well, she gets to a level of intimacy that's impossible in an incredible short amount of time. So she'll get to a level of intimacy with you that's deeper than somebody you've known for twenty years. I mean, like that good, um, and. You know, like I talked to her for maybe, um, I didn't, you know, I talked to her in the car ride over, I interviewed her and then, you know, like we come back and there's like a dinner at my house and um, she's looking at the the seating and she goes, Ben, why am I across the table from you? Like, why am I sitting next to you? And I'm like, oh, I can move that. She's like, what are you talking about, Ben? She said, you know how hard your wife worked on this dinner and how much she thought about where everybody was sitting? You can't do that to her. And I was like, fuck, she just stopped me from making a big mistake. How she, she didn't even know me. She doesn't know anything. Like, how did she get all that knowledge so fast? Um, but that's like, and you can see it when she interviews people. Like, that's why people cry when they talk to Oprah. They're like, it's that good. She's that good. In one interview, she can get to that level. And Bill could do the exact same thing, by the way. Yeah. And so that sounds like that sounds like some combination of innate talent and skill, maybe more more innate talent. Well, I mean, you know, she's a, they they both hone that talent over you know decades. So I I do think it's a combination. I I don't think it's <laughs> look. I learned as much as I could from both of them on that, and I really studied Bill tightly, and I I am still like twenty percent of what he can do on that front. Yeah. Yeah, somebody who grew up in the in the Midwest, I can tell you, I have I have the opposite of whatever you just described. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not. I, I wouldn't suggest that that that, that would be your forte doing that one. <laughs>
Um, okay, good. All right, we're halfway through the questions, halfway through the session, uh, right on track. So, um, so uh, a different topic. So Sarah Cohn, our friend Sarah Cohn asks, what's, um, what's the billion dollar plus evaluation company that you think is the easiest to compete with and why? And let me just uh, suggest we parameterize the question because we, this is a, we, we try to be a nice, pleasant show here. Um, you know, let's not name names on current companies. Um, so let's, let's talk in terms of, you know, sort of characteristics instead. So let's, let's broaden out the question to like, what are the characteristics of big companies um, that make them the easiest to compete with? Yeah, no, that, that's good. Um, and, and on naming names, I would just say that, um, you know, we have a, a belief at the firm or a cultural value that, um, you know, nothing is, we think there's maybe no endeavor greater uh, in this world than creating something from nothing and doing something larger than yourself. So if somebody goes out to do that and build a company, um, then like we're dream supporters, not dream killers. So we wouldn't, you know, attack a unicorn or whatever, uh, certainly not, not in front of people. Yep. Um, so that's, that, that's why Mark's saying what he's saying. So um, characteristically, like, I think, first of all, you want to pick something that doesn't have a network effect <laughs> um, because that's, um, you know, those are very difficult to break. So, you know, something where every deal is kind of independent of every other deal, every customer is independent of, of every past customer to the extent possible. That's kind of one thing. Another characteristic that we look for, you know, it's something that we call, um, we'd rather go after old incumbents than new incumbents with the distinguishing factor being, is the founder still running the company? Because if the founder is running the company, then you may attack them on a weakness they have, but that founder will be able to react and close that gap and deal with you. Um, and so, you know, that's, uh, you know, in a way that like an old, uh, you know, a new incumbent or somebody who is a professional taking over the company might not be as nimble on that. And then the, you know, the third characteristic uh, is just kind of an architectural shift. Um, so if something is changing and, you know, we had an architectural shift from um, kind of on-premise software to SaaS software. And, you know, at that point, you know, everybody who is building on-premise software became vulnerable to this idea of, you know, billion dollar valuation plus, but you could attack them. Uh, and so those are probably three of the big things. I mean, I think we're coming up on another architectural shift from kind of centralized to decentralized. And, uh, you know, I think there will be some incumbents that can't, can't cross that chasm when it comes. Yeah, then I, I nominate maybe two other two other lenses or two other things I notice. Um, so one is to, just to pull out the, the personality toolkit. So I described disagreeableness as one of the big five personality traits. So there's there's two other personality traits that are really relevant to the Ben's point about this new incumbent, old incumbent thing. Um, and these are the personality. These are two of the other big five. And one is called openness, which literally is like openness mm -hmm. to new ideas and creativity. Um, right. And the other is called conscientiousness, which like quite literally is like level of level of sort of responsibility, like level of structure. Um, <laughs> Those don't always go together. Well, and in fact, exactly. So it, typically, not always, but typically they're, they're actually in opposition. Um, yeah. Right. And so so typically people who are open are entrepreneurs, visionaries, um, you know, uh, founders, artists, right, painters, musicians, right, um, you know, writers. 
um, you know, people who, uh, you know, by the way, in you know, some cases like, you know, pol political leaders, um, you know, who have, who have started new ideas. Um, and so people who are, who are open to new things and then, um, you know, conscientious people tend to tend to ba basically, you know, in the, in the sort of stereotype, you know, tend to be administrators, right? So they, they, they tend to run things that other people have built and, 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 and they tend to run them really well. Like, and so like you want somebody who's high conscientiousness, you know, running the nuclear power plant, right? You want, you know, running the defense department, um, you know, running the, you know, hospital that you go to, right? And, and you know, the restaurant that you go to. Right, because you, know, you go to the restaurant, you don't want somebody like literally like you know thinking, oh, I don't know, maybe I could use you know raw eggs in this dish, you know, for the first time. Um, you know, you want somebody who like wants to deliver like you know a, a, like a, a systematically uh, excellent meal every time you go. Um, and so you have this, uh, you have this like this basic dichotomy between the two. And like every once in a while, you find the special person who's both open and conscientious, which is just like really rare. But more often, you, you've got these two personality types, and so. And then, and then, and this, this goes, this, this is where I sort of finally was able to kind of wrap my head around this sort of phenomenon. You see. Well, you hear, uh, yeah. I, I think that you're open and selectively conscientious, Mark. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Care, carefully. I have, limit, I have a limited conscientiousness budget, and so I spend it carefully. <laughs> um, and, and this is the sort of canonical shift from like a founder, right, to a professional CEO. Um, and therefore, this is the canonical shift, you know, from a new incumbent to an old incumbent. Uh, the way Ben described it, which is basically like in the early years, companies tend to be run by people who are highly open and maybe not that structured. Um, and then, you know, basically what happens when a company has to do the handoff at some point from the founder to a professional CEO, like usually at that point, the company is kind of at that point wishing and hoping for more structure, um, right? Because, you know, there's there's some chaos that comes with the open personality type. And so they, they tend to go the other way and they tend to have somebody who then is more structured and, and then therefore less open. And that's that's like an amazing opportunity, uh, right, for a startup to then take a run at that company, um, because you know, and, and let's assume that the startup actually has like a new idea, right? The the startup has some twist that the incumbent hasn't thought of, right, or some you know some new approach to the, to, to the space or something. Uh, but assuming that there is a genuinely new idea at play, um, then the basic personality type of a lot of professional CEOs is basically just like the just like they're just like literally not open. They're just like literally not interested in new ideas. Um, and and it, not even just even in that job, but just like probably, in, you know, in a lot of cases, like quite literally in their life, because um, they have they have kind of that personality type dialed in. Um, and so you get this sort of very interesting thing where you get these very powerful companies uh, that look very strong, right, and look like they have like these giant moats and so forth. And, and they just, they literally will not respond, like they won't react to new ideas. Because it's just like the, the whole idea of reacting to a new, new idea or like developing a new product or something is just such an alien concept. So so that's that's always a that's you know so that's a um, you know that's a good news scenario. You you don't often get that level of good news, um, uh, but that uh, you know that definitely can happen. Oh, and then you know and again we, we in the spirit in the same spirit of the conversation we're having about disagreeableness earlier, you know then from a development standpoint, right? If you're somebody who's like super open, right? It's probably a good idea to at least try to get somewhat more conscientious. And then if you are you know if you do find yourself running or an executive at sort of a big established company and you have startups coming at you. Like it's probably a good idea to try hard to actually, you know, be more open, which is which is a really hard thing to ask somebody to do because it's like, oh, I want you to like consider these new ideas that you think are stupid. Like, <laughs> so, so, so I'm gonna yeah. like force you know force myself to like not think that an idea is stupid. Like that's not a natural act. Um, but you know, it, it it may be that to like run one of these companies and have startups coming at you, like you 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 or somebody on the team has to fundamentally be more open to new ideas than might be comfortable or might be natural. Um, and, I, and I think th th this dynamic, at least for me, kind of encapsulates a lot of the push and pull that we see when startups and big companies go up against each other. 
Yep. Yep. No, that, 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 that's a great way to characterize it. And then it shows, you know, which big companies are good at reacting, the, you know, the ones who are open and will chase you down that, that path. Um, yeah, and then, oh, the other thing I was going to mention. So the other thing you find, and this is probably related somewhat, but Ben, see what you think about this is, with a lot of big, big companies, the big companies easy to compete with. Another thing is like, they tend to be very inward focused. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, you always kind of are surprised, or at least I'm always kind of surprised the extent to which big companies, the people who work at big companies, like if they're not very careful, they can spend all their time talking mostly to themselves. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the, the test I always kind of, I don't know whether this is a real test or not, but I always kind of wonder is if you, if you visit their headquarters, like, can you actually find your way to the buildings? Like, do you, if you, oh, we're going to meet in building 37, like, are, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, are there signs that point the way to building 37, mm. right? Which is to say, <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, do they expect to actually have visitors? Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. As opposed to like some of these campuses you'll go to, it's like literally I can't find a freaking thing. Like I don't know where anything is. And, and everybody who works in that company is just like, oh, obviously it's over there. Right. And it's just because yeah. like everybody they deal with is somebody already knows where the buildings are. <laughs> designed to be insular. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, insular the, by design. Yeah. Well, the basic, actually, it's interesting, right? The basic concept of a corporate campus, right? Kind of by definition is intended to be insular, right? Yeah. Yep. You're, you're putting everybody together, and so it, it is. It is fairly astonishing with with some larger companies. It's just fairly astonishing. And maybe there's like some metric or ratio of like the percentage of the time spent talking to people inside versus outside. Um, but you, you do you do end up when when you're in those companies, it can be fairly disorienting. Um, you know, basically how how strong the worldview can be internally about basically yeah. what's happening on the outside, and then the level of shock that something new actually happens on the outside. Yeah. And so that's yeah, no, that's, that's right. Yeah, sorry, it's so hard to run a big company, you know, against a a real threat. Yep. Yep. And then uh, probably the other thing worth noting is everybody has an opinion, um, and so <laughs> yep. you have forty thousand people working for you. They've all got opinions, and you show up one day, and you're like, "We got to go compete with the startup nobody's ever heard of." And most of the opinions will get back are like, "No, that's stupid." <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Okay, good. All right, let's keep going. Um, Okay, so this is, uh, Ben, I'll start with the answer to this one and see what you think. So uh, Angelique asks, which for-profit companies, which for-profit companies invest in R&D like the U.S. government did from about 1930 to 1970, when famously the U.S. government sponsored a lot of the research that led to everything kind of around us today? Um, in this vein, does the profit motive impede major technological breakthroughs like developing the internet, which was actually, right, the internet was developed based on actually research kind of funded during that period, uh, federal government research funded during that period. Um, so this is a big, uh, very important topic, a big hairy topic, and so I'll, I'll take a couple of a couple of cuts at it, and, and see and, and Ben see what you think. So so mm -hmm. one is, um, I, was, I guess it's important to say there there are very different kinds of R and D, um, and generally speaking, like the spectrum goes something like this. It's like kind of you know draw a line, and like on the far left you have like the really long dated research, like the 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 work that might pay off in ten or twenty or thirty years, um, mm -hmm. and and that's often right what's referred to as basic research. Um, yep. and, and, and that's often scientific research, yeah. scientific research, like, pro, like actual full on proper scientific research, um, you know, yeah. just discovering like new principles of the universe or new materials or, you know, new combinations of things. And the characteristic of basic research, number one is you, 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 you know, these, these tend to be like the, you know, the world's best, you know, best scientists, uh, in a lot of cases. And then, you know, they're, so they're sort of ab, sort of abstract thinkers or sort of conceptual thinkers in their science they're, but they're maybe not, maybe they don't necessarily think in terms of applications. 
And then the other is like, look, the, the, the work just might be so early that you don't know what the application is going to be, right? And so it's, it's very common when like early stages of physics or chemistry or math or whatever are developed, like you, you just, the, the people who actually invented these concepts or discovered these natural laws or whatever, just, you know, could never have conceived of the use cases 30 or 40 or 50 years down the road. Yeah. Um, and so it's a sort of very, very important, uh, very strategic, very fundamental approach to basic science research, but but one that is very uncoupled from anything that any of us would sort of, uh, sort of uncoupled from either the concept of engineering, right, of, of actually like applying science to build a product or, or certainly from business. Um, and then like, as you work your way in, basically, it's like, okay, maybe that stuff that's like 10 or 30 or even 50 years out. And then there's like what's sometimes called like applied science, which is like stuff that's maybe like five to seven to 10 years out. And for example, a lot of material science might be like this, or actually a fair amount of work in computer science these days is probably like this. Like if you're working on new networking algorithms for something, or, you know, for example, at a, at, a, at a university lab, like they, they, they'll probably get commercialized, you know, within five or 10 years. So sort of applied science. And then you get into basically, um, you, you, you kind of get to the halfway point on, the, on, that, on that line. And maybe that's sort of halfway points, like, I don't know, five-year payoff or something. And then on the other half in less than five-year payoff, you're, you know, you're really in the realm of engineering, right? And you're in the realm of, of, of business, right? And so it's like, okay, given all this science and given all this, like all these techniques, we're now going to apply it all and we're going to build a product, right? And we're going to, you know, to, to our earlier conversation, like we're probably going to bring that product to market at some point in the next five years. Um, you know, it's generally how these things work. Um, and, and so, yeah, and then, and then you kind of go, go all the way to the stuff that kind of gets built, you know, over the course of a year or two. So, so that's the general spectrum. Um, there is this like really, so I guess I'd say companies clearly, I would say, I think, I think this is sort of an uncontroversial statement. Companies clearly can fund everything kind of probably up to seven to 10 years out would be my guess. So everything up to and including applied science. Um, companies historically have struggled to fund um, things that are sort of 10 plus years out. So the so-called basic, basic research um, uh, or the, the more abstract sciences. And so the stuff that's like 10 to 50 years, uh, companies have had a much harder time funding. Um, and I think part of that is, yeah, it's just like, look, like what, you know, what is the, what is the profit incentive? Like for everything else, there's like a clear profit incentive. Like what is the profit incentive to develop something that may or may not bear fruit over a 20 or 30 or 40 year period, you know, is, is one. And that's, you know, of course the traditional explanation for government funding of R and D, which, which generally I think for, for that kind of science is, is generally a good idea. Um, you know, so, so, so there's that. So there's some like natural dichotomy there. Um, now, what you do find interestingly is there is a segment of companies that actually is willing to fund basic research. Um, yep. and, and, and these are kind of, there are certain legendary cases like this. And so historically, um, you know, they are specifically, I'll just talk historically to, to make it easier, but like historically there are companies like IBM, um, and then, you know, which had IBM research for many years and still does, uh, HP, which had sort of the famous HP labs. Um, mm -hmm. you had, uh, Xerox, which had Xerox park. Um, you had um, sort of networking and computing. Um, and you know, these are research labs that had you know projects that later you know developed fundamental technologies, literally, you know, decades, decades on the line. Um, and so there's a criticism that gets leveled against kind of current tech companies that basically says, Where's the equivalent of IBM research or HP Labs or Xerox Park or ATT Bell Labs? And our current company is like dropping the ball or like not delivering up to, you know, kind of expectations. So sort of societal level expectations by not funding that kind of mm -hmm. research. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a legitimate question. 
That said, the other observation you'd make, like of all four examples I gave you, is that at the time they were funding all that research, at the at the peak of their long-term scientific research efforts, uh, they were monopolies. Yeah. Well, I would say right? that they, they were either like monopolies or like near monopolies. Like, yeah. Well, speech, speaking of which, I Go think that, you know those are the companies who are like Google. I, I think it's hard to argue that Google's not doing basic research in AI. I mean, right? They they, they most certainly are. Right. The, with, Deep, with DeepMind being one example, and probably Waymo, but probably the self-driving car work being another example. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the way Waymo is approaching self-driving is is uh, basically an AI complete problem. So, um, which is why you know they, they they're going for a very high safety bar. Yep. And so so then you kind of have this sort of super interesting question, um, which is like, okay, if um, uh, you know, if the companies that end up funding this basic research and uh, end up being the monopolies, it's like, okay, on the one hand, like maybe that's good because it's like maybe that's what the monopoly should be doing. Yeah. Um, it, it does raise, at least historically, it does raise the question of motive, right? Which yeah. is, were they were they funding the research because they thought it was going to fund the research, or were they funding the research to try to make themselves look more benevolent than they actually were? <laughs> that, that, that's a question on many dimensions for companies today. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. Looking, looking benevolent becomes very important when you get to a certain size, it turns out. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and look, maybe it's all fine. Like maybe, maybe that's all actually a good, maybe that's actually a good combination. Like maybe that's actually yeah. sufficient motivation. Going back to the profit motive, like maybe the profit motive for companies to kind of get the monopoly status is basically preserve the monopoly at all costs. And that basically means funnel money into as many things as possible that make you look good. And if one of those things that makes you look good is, is funding lots of basic research, like maybe, maybe, you know, in other words, maybe that's like a major societal payoff that sort of flows from the fact mm -hmm. that you're actually operating out of self-interest at that point. Yeah, and I think that it's easier. Well, so it's very interesting because going back to the internet, it's like, oh, well, um, the U.S. government funded the internet, and that's true. But then if you get into the details, it's pretty interesting, right? So the kind of the early breakthroughs were from a guy named Claude Shannon, who was at AT and T, but was also a professor at uh, MIT, and then um, he had a student, Len Kleinrock who uh, kind of uh, did the proof that proved packet switching, which was you know, also a big breakthrough that led to the internet and was kind of one of the early pioneers in building it. So there, there was a connection, like the AT&T monopoly definitely contributed in uh, Bill. And then of course there's um, Unix was developed at AT&T as well. Right. Um, you know, and so a lot of the technology that was very fundamental to the internet um, was actually funded by AT&T, not the U.S. government. So they, they funded it together in a way. So that, that I think, is important to understand. And I also think that uh, the government has probably gotten uh, worse at doing things themselves <laughs> um, than they were, uh, and they're better at kind of giving money to really smart people like they gave to Len for, you know, DARPANET and, and those things. Um, and... Uh, and then kind of, I, I would say the, the kind of interesting kind of, there's a great modern example of how this can work, which is uh, on the COVID-19 vaccine. So, you know, as we know from our, our bio uh, fund, funding vaccines, you know, as a business has been almost impossible because of the way the economics have worked. Like you just can't fund companies to build vaccines um, because, you know, people need to get vaccines for free. <laughs> um, 
and or like what the payout is going to be is very hard to kind of contemplate. And so all these great kind of bio companies have been making drugs, not vaccines. Well, with and this is something that, you know, because Trump is such a polarizing figure and such a pinata for the press, it, it never actually came out. But Operation Warp Speed did one thing that was really important, which is they pre-bought tons of vaccines from all these companies so everybody could fund massive development and manufacturing efforts against it because they knew they already had the sale. Um, and that was a really productive way that government and business worked together to do breakthrough research, really, um, in, in developing this kind of thing. So I don't know how much that adds to what you said, but but just kind of, I, I think you have to be flexible in how you think it works. I don't think uh, it's in one domain or the other necessarily, and <laughs> monopoly labs uh, can be helpful. Yep. Um, and, you know, small companies, if you, you know, if it's so important that you guarantee them money, then then they can do things um, that they wouldn't otherwise ordinarily do. Yeah, and I would say if you want to get, if you want to get depressed about kind of the direction of sort of federally funded research, because, you know, people, everybody's kind of at least in the abstract, like supportive of federally funded research, and you can point to these huge wins, you know, kind of of the, of the past, um, you know, including the internet, but also, you know, modern biotech and so forth kind of flowed from a lot of government investment in R&D in the, in the 20th century. If you want to get depressed on the topic, the thing to look at is um, it's actually it's the age um, of the um, uh, of the age of what are called the principal investigators. So the sort of senior scientists, uh, sponsoring scientists who receive uh, federal research grants. Um, and, and basically what you'll find is that's monotonically increasing over time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not that older scientists can't like do great work, but it's like, you know, over time, would you rather have, you know, who, who would you rather have spearheading great research efforts into new areas over time? Would you rather have people, you know, sort of people who are getting older and older and older, or, you know, would you rather have, you know, young, you know, young and sort of very bright and, you know, kind of very kind of, uh, you know, kind of aggressive, ambitious scientists earlier in their career uh, who can go after things. And, and you know, you, you mentioned, you know, people like Len Kleinrock, I, I don't know exactly how old he was, but like, I do, I do remember like, you know, when, when uh, he was a kid uh, then. Oh yeah. No, he's very young. I mean, it was, uh, 62. So he's in his twenties. Uh, yeah. He did that yeah. proof. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you trace this back, I think this is the case, Ben, there was, there was a guy, there was a guy at DARPA called named uh, JCR Licklider. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, there's a, there's a, I think there's a, a book written about him, but, um, he, he basically was the guy who sort of was the funder of a lot of the research that led to the internet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had, you know, this was like 50 years ago now or something, but like in those days, a guy like that running an agency like DARPA had like a lot of latitude to basically make, you know, very fast decisions, uh, and be able to take risk. Um, yeah. it was sort of pre what you might describe as like all the institutional reforms that have taken place in government funded research over the last 50 years. Um, in contrast, the people who are in those jobs today, you know, they obviously, I'm sure, you know, they mean well, and they do a lot of good work, but like they, they are, they are saddled with a lot of regulation, um, and yeah. restrictions on what they can well, do. And they, yep. th- that brings up the final twist, which we haven't mentioned, which is, um, these businesses kind of create billionaires that then create nonprofits that create new funding models. So particularly in biological research, the best research isn't funded by the federal government. Now it's funded by Howard Hughes Medical Institute and then Sean Parker's Cancer Institute. Like they're funding the most breakthrough people, the young people, the the kind of most promising ones 
and giving them the freedom to not kind of conform to a very kind of bureaucratic proposal that somebody in the U.S. government thinks is a good idea. They, they, they fund people, not projects. Um, and they've, they've made amazing progress. Uh, and like, if you just look at our business, which is kind of the receiver of this basic research, um, we take stuff coming out of HHMI or the Parker Institute far quicker than, you know, something that was funded by like a U.S. government grant. Yeah, and then I, I, I go through all that, and Ben goes through all that to kind of go back to the original question, which is like, if if you are somebody who believes that the government should fund more R and D, um, which I think is a perfectly reasonable belief, um, the question should not just be the amount of money. The question should also be the how, yep. um, and the mechanics. And I would say, like generally speaking, I think most people in that world, I think most people in that world would say things are headed in the wrong direction right now. So, if anybody's interested interested in this, I think so spending some time kind of wrapping your head around kind of how it actually works and how it might work better. It's probably yeah. at least as important as the amount of money. Yeah, and that's not like a political idea that we have. That's just what we get from speaking with researchers and say, who would you rather get funding from and who funds the best people? Yep. Okay, good. Great question. Thank you for that one. Um, okay, final two. So uh, CV asks us, and I love this question, and Ben, I'm going I'm to start on this one and see what you think um, also. <laughs> All right. Um, do you think investing in people pre-idea Right. So investing in people. We were just kind of, kind of, of talking about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh, investing in people will become popular. Uh, similar to the idea of so-called income share agreements or ISAs, which uh, there's a, a, a company we yeah. know well called Lambda School uh, that's yep. innovated uh, locally. Um, will this idea become mainstream for investing in people who have the potential to become great founders or, by the way, to do other, other, other great things in life? So so this is something I'm actually quite, quite excited about. So... Um, <laughs> So basically, if, if, you, if you float to somebody the idea basically that says, look, we're going to start investing in human beings, like we're going to start basically fronting people money, um, right? And then later on, they're going to pay us a percentage of their income. Um, there's immediately a historical precedent that leaps directly into people's minds. And it's, it's what was called indentured servitude, right? And so, <laughs> yeah. right, it was yeah. quite, which is quite literally- like <laughs> Which housing. was not a good system. Which was well, it was it, it was actually an improvement over the prior labor labor model um, of the time, which was slavery. So it was good in that way. But so we shouldn't judge people in history too badly for the indentured serve. But it's a very bad model today. It would be regressive. Yeah. And so you, and you'd literally have that's exactly right. So you'd literally have immigrants, for example, who would show up in America as an example, um, and basically their you know passage to the new world had been funded by somebody who basically literally quite literally invested in them. Um, and then they had this obligation once they got here to basically work to and, and, and basically to turn over some large percentage of their income uh, to the person who had funded the trip. And so th this 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 like triggers this idea triggers like these kind of cultural ancestral memories um, that are, are just like are very unpleasant um, and, and, and people have a very hard time with. What I find so interesting about that um, is that what we are completely comfortable with is funding people with debt. Right. Um, in the form of like student loans and consumer loans and like car loans and home loans and like, you know, loans is, is sort of as far as the eye can see. And of course, if we think about loans and we think about debt, there's sort of, I think, an equivalently morally loaded kind of concept from history, which is like quite literally the concept of a debtor's prison. Right. Which is like, you know, <laughs> in the old days, um, if you didn't pay back your debts, they threw you in prison. And, and it's, it's just sort of like, yep. you know, okay, you know, fair enough. Like, you, you know, you broke your, con the theory was that you broke your contract. You agreed to pay this money back. You didn't pay it back. You had to be punished. The way to punish you is throw you in prison. 
Of course, debtor's prison like was not actually an effective way to address the problem because if somebody's in prison, they're not making any money. Um, and if they're not making any money, like they'll never pay the loan back. Um, and so like, you know, that model like broke down at some point. Um, and then that led to, you know, kind of the modern concept that we understand as bankruptcy. Um, but, but again, there's like even a twist with like bankruptcy, which is like, guess, guess what is the one kind of debt in the U S that's not dischargeable through bankruptcy, right? It's, it's student loan debt. Right. And so we, you know, we, we don't throw people in prison anymore for not paying their student loan debt back, but we don't let them discharge it through bankruptcy. And so you have, you know, you see these stories where like people literally have like 150 or $200,000 in student loan debt. And, you know, they're working for 20 years to try to pay it off. And so, so it's like, for some reason, like that, our, our, our theory of morality on this has taken like this very interesting turn where somehow we've ended up more comfortable with debt than with equity. Um, and, and I would argue like we should, we should be open-minded about bringing more, this back into balance and, and basically saying that like both of these approaches might be okay. And furthermore, uh, having an equity approach might actually be superior to a debt approach um, for actually, you know, potentially a fairly broad, uh, you know, range of activities. And the reason we might consider that, you know, is, is, is basically because at least in theory, the great thing about equity is equity can, equity can result in exact alignment of interests. Right. And, and, and this is, you know, this is, of course, how, how startups right. are funded. You, you, you want the, you want the uh, indentured servant to win instead of lose, which is a, a much better model. Yeah. The, the more like if you. Yeah, exactly. Like if you have an ISA on somebody's future income, you want them to have as much income as possible. Right. And you, yep. you, and you want to do as much as you possibly can to help them boost their income. Like you just have a very straightforward reason to do that um, as compared to viewing them as like basically some sort of, you know, just obligation or like a sort of, you know, baggage that you kind of lug around behind you and always wonder if they're going to repay. Yep. So, 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 so equity can be like a fundamentally more, I guess I would say, you might say um, optimistic, positive, constructive, generative, um, mutually aligned interest mechanism. Um, as compared to debt, which is kind of, debt kind of is more inherently an adversarial system. Um, yep. Like either I pay you back or I don't. If I don't, you're mad at me. Um, right. But like, you're, you know, you're not going to really do anything to help me. Um, and so I think we should be a lot more open to this idea. Um, and, 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 and look, like I think that like if you just look at like the world at large, like basically like you might say make two big macro kind of um, statements about the world at large. One is the world at large is like a wash in money that people literally don't know what to do with, right? Um, there's still like $15 trillion of negative yielding government debt uh, of, of, of Western countries trading on the, on the bond markets. And it's like that, you know, that money literally is being given to somebody who's literally gonna give you back less money. Um, and so like that's money that like should be much more productively invested. Um, and just like more generally, there's probably on the order of 50 to 100 trillion of sort of liquid assets worldwide that are just like flat out underinvested. And then, you know, on the other side, the world is awash in, you know, potentially very talented and skilled people who just like need a leg up um, and need opportunity, right? And need somebody to really believe in them and need somebody potentially to be able to fund their, you know, to be able to fund their education, right? To be able to fund their, you know, their, you know, to be able to fund their ability to, you know, get a job, to be able to fund their ability to, you know, travel or move, right? Um, or their ability to, you know, have a home. Um, and so, you know, for all of, you know, or to start a company, right? Um, and so there, there, we, we do seem to be, you know, after whatever, 3000 years or whatever, a sort of economic progress, like we still ended up in the state of the world in which like we just have like a lot of money that doesn't have enough productive like projects and people to invest in. And we have a lot of people who were just fundamentally un uninvested in. And so these kinds of e equity approaches, like one could imagine a world in which this becomes quite commonplace and is viewed as, I think, very positive. Yeah, no, so I, I very much agree with that. Like, and, and one of the things that I think you said that is most important is there are so many amazingly talented people out there that um, that everyone would want to invest in. 
Um, and there's just not a, a mechanism. I mean, you know, it's a pretty high bar to, okay, you're going to build a company and, you know, change the world or this and that and the other. But what if you're just investing in their career, uh, the way Landmas School is doing or something like that? And, and I think that industries are changing as well in that, uh, you know, music historically has had this model that was kind of a mixture of debt and then kind of like a salary, but the label of retained ownership. So they give you an advance that was known as recoupable, which meant you had to pay it back. Um, and then, uh, you know, which, which is a difficult situation. And then they would own your kind of master recording, which meant they kind of own the rights to it in perpetuity. You, you'd never kind of uh, could get them back. Um, and they could, you know, as a result, kind of sell publishing rights and this and that and the other. Um, and I think in music, people are moving to more of an equity model now. And we're working on that with a company we're in called United Masters. But just generally, I think moving from uh, debt to equity is inevitable. And like we have the kind of technology to make it very viable. And, uh, you know, we're starting to see pitches on people who are saying, okay, how can we uh, create equity in people? And it just be an amazing thing, you know, and, and kind of it gets you out of like, you know, if your family has a lot of money, then they may invest in you. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what if everybody had a rich uncle? And yep. um, I, I think that's, you know, that's the world we're going to. And that's going to be amazing. Yep. Good. Fantastic. Okay, good. Final question. Um, so uh, Ronnie asks, if you started today fresh with the exact same knowledge you have now, but no connections, so nobody knows who you are, um, and $50,000 in your bank, um, and uh, uh, he or she says not in the U.S., but let's just say in the U.S. or, or anywhere, um, what would you do? So Ben, why don't you start, and then I've got hopefully a good answer on this one. I would 100% start a crypto project if I was me. <laughs> um, you know, different people have different skills and talent. Uh, but since it's me and the knowledge that I have now, um, I would uh, I, I would start a crypto project. I, you know, I would probably kind of, with my skill set, do something more on the the infrastructure side. I think there's a lot of kind of components to the to the uh, decentralized infrastructure that need to be more robust and. Um, and kind of improved. And so there's a lot of opportunity there. And it's something that you can build very cheaply, like $50,000 gets you a long way. Um, and then it's something that people expect to be kind of international uh, from a funding standpoint. So not being <laughs> in the US is no problem. Um, so that that's my quick take. And how would you start this? How would, what, what would it mean to start a project like that if nobody literally knew who, who you were on day one? Well, I think you just start writing code. I mean, you know, I think that um, the uh, you go, <laughs> you can attend our crypto startup school um, and start to kind of pick up or, and read the crypto canon uh, and start to understand the technology. But, you know, I think, and then, you know, start using the products and see, you know, to me, you use the kind of products that are there, try and build something, see what's hard about that. And then, you know, you close those gaps. And then all of a sudden, you've got a very valuable skill set um, and, you know, maybe a very valuable product. But even if you don't have a very valuable product, all of a sudden, um, there's 10,000 companies that will hire you in a second because yeah. you know the technology that everybody needs. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, what's interesting about our era is, like, literally all the information that you're describing is available online for free. 
Yeah, right, right, right. You don't have to uh, buy a Microsoft compiler for $1,000. <laughs> when I started, yeah. when, I'm sure you remember this, Ben. When I started, uh, if, you want to be a, if you want to be a professional computer engineer, you needed access. You literally needed access to like, you know, like something like a half million dollar computer. And you literally needed access to that because it came with a wall of instruction manuals. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, they, 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 it was like a whole book. It was like an Encyclopedia Britannica. Yep. But like you couldn't like you couldn't like go to the library and read those manuals. Like only the owners of those machines yeah. had those manuals. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. And so to yep. get from that world to the world we're in today, where literally the stuff's all available for free online, is is quite something. Yeah. Uh, no, man pages were quite the breakthrough. <laughs> they, they, they were <laughs> online. Who knew? Online documentation. Um, yeah. I, so let me give, I'll give the a sort of a more elaborate kind of maybe the older version of kind of maybe the same thing. Um, so I, I always sort of thought it was kind of um, it's sort of like. So let me give the slightly more elaborate version, which is sort of uh, step one, minimize burn rate. Um, and so basically get to a location with like minim, you know, minimal cost of living, um, you, know, you know, studio apartment or something, um, you know, someplace to like live and work, but like, you know, for as little money as possible, uh, you know, minimize lifestyle, minimize, you know, cash burn on, you know, food and, you know, uh, other things. Um, uh, and basically hunker down to work. So that's sort of step one. And of course, the good, the good news, again, internet world, it does, you know, this, you know, these days, this can now mean from anywhere. Um, so, and then basically have a computer, have an internet connection. Um, so that's step one. And then sort of step two is if I didn't, like, if I wasn't, if I didn't feel like I was in a position to do exactly what Ben described, um, start doing contract programming. Um, so, you know, people can start like, you know, quite, quite quickly now people with, you know, programming skills can, um, can start, um, you know, basically making money quickly by doing contract work. And there's a number of online marketplaces, uh, that make that quite straightforward. Um, and basically do enough of that to cover the bills. Um, and so maybe that's, you know, depending on how good you are, 20 or 30 or 40 hours a week or something to cover the bills. And then you basically have at that point, you know, an, an indefinite burn rate or an indefinite, you know, kind of runway um, on your cash. Um, and then it's basically like the more general form of what Ben is describing, I think, is basically um, uh, start contributing to open source. Um, and and, the, and there, you know, the, the, the main recommendation would be like find a super hot area of open source, of which one yeah. of the hottest areas of all is crypto. And so this is probably where our, where our, our, our plans converge. Um, and so, you know, find an open source project that is like right on the leading edge of whatever are the, you know, kind of the hottest new technology trends. Um, and then, you know, spend the other, like if you're spending 30 hours a, a, a week programming for money, you know, spend the other whatever, <laughs> whatever, 90 hours or whatever you have when you're not asleep, um, you know, contributing to open source. Um, and, and even just like, even if it's not like you're not the main person on the project or even if it's not a project you create or even, even if it's not crypto, like, you know, in, in this world, people can build like real reputations, uh, based on their contributions to open source, um, uh, online. And then with that reputation, right. And with that sort of a calling card, you know, that then propels you into your first job. Um, you know, if you're working on the right kind of project and have the right kind of work ethic and the right skill set that comes out of that, you know, as Ben said, there are a lot of companies that want to hire people uh, who do these things. Um, and so that then propels you into sort of the first job with a quote unquote kind of real tech company. Um, and then, you know, from there, it becomes much more straightforward, which is like, OK, then go like take that real job at a real tech company, like do a like absolutely outstanding job at that job, um, you know, build a network, uh, build a knowledge base over the course of the next few years you know, about how companies work or about, you know, how to, how to ha have a network of people you like to work with. And then, you know, at some point, at some point, start your own company. Um, <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. So it is a, um, you know, it is a, uh, it is, it is a, it is a, it is a remarkable path, uh, you know, for people at least who are technically minded that, that just, it's hard to even think about any, anything in human history that, that, that's, that's been that kind of path that's been that widely available. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing time to have those skills for sure. Um, 
It, uh, it, I feel like, uh, you know, Mark, you and I came up the much harder way, but yeah. um, it was good. Puts uh, air on your chest or whatever. Well, dodging, air in your dodging, tongue, maybe. Dodging dinosaurs the whole time. Um, <laughs> so we are right at 8.28. So we have almost nailed it um, in terms of timing. So that is our 10 questions for the night. So um, thank you, Ben, once again. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Felicia, for warming up the room for us. And, and we will uh, see you next week. We'll see you in a week. Okay, thanks, everybody. Have a great hey, night on Clubhouse. Thank you.